0: Our prayer is that this message would nurture a joy for
1: loving God and loving people in you as you listen.
0: See my bleeding dying, Lord. The scripture reading this morning comes from Psalm 37, verses 1 through 6. It's found on page 466 of the Blue Pew Bible. Psalm 37, verses 1 through 6. and your justice as the noonday. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever.
1: Let's ask that the Lord would uh, use this passage in our hearts today. Let us pray. Lord, we come to you, the very author of this word, the Holy Spirit, Come and open up our hearts that we will not only understand, but that we will believe this word. We will be changed by this word. It will affect how we think, how we love, how we live in every area. Lord, faith comes by hearing your word. and We pray, bless this word to our hearts that we will grow in our faith and grow in our knowledge of Jesus Christ grow in our character of being like Him and manifesting Him. For we ask it in the precious name of Christ, amen. <clears throat> we began a <clears throat> series last week on the subject of worship, and the first topic we dealt with uh, was adoration. Of course, to think that you can talk about adoration in one uh, talk, is one sermon is ludicrous in a way, but... We did spend one session on it. Uh, we, uh, as we talked about adoration, we're talking about how in adoration you actively admire God. Um, adoration and amazement, you could say, are like twin sisters. Adoration is fundamentally being amazed at some aspect of what God has done what He has made, what He has accomplished, who He is. Uh, It's really part of astonishment and awe. You think of all those A words as kind of quadruplets, you know, adoration, amazement, astonishment, awe. This all has to do with, it's a vital part of our worship. And therefore, we talked about how it's emotional, necessarily, because there is, in our contemplation and meditation either on uh, creation or legitimate culture or the redemption uh, either directly or indirectly through the word of god something of his glory invades us something of his beauty you might say ambushes us and we worship we stand amazed at him We must practice astonishment, as I said. We must practice being emotionally engaged, not only in this hour, but throughout our days, uh, practicing adoration. If you're in a 20-foot boat and a 50-foot whale breaks the water just beside your boat, you will not be calm about it, you know. (laughs) Uh, you may just be in awe and wonder or you may be so shocked and scared you're screaming, you know, and losing yourself. You jump overboard you know, in the water with the creature, uh, but you will not be calm. And the the point is, and I'm not trying to say that every time we learn anything or have any engagement, it's going to be just like that. But I'm trying to make a point that if this small part of God's creation breaks in upon us. What's going to happen when the glory of God constantly breaks in upon us? And we must be satisfied with nothing less than that. Uh, Like the two men on the road to Emmaus who said, weren't our hearts burning within us as he was opening up the word to us? As they say in exercise, go for the burn, okay? Go for the heart to be burning with desire. Hope for the emotions to be engaged. Be like Jacob and say, Lord, I will not let you go till you bless me. I don't want to be lackadaisical towards you, Lord. I don't want to have no feeling towards you, especially when I know I have so much feeling in so many other areas of my life, including, as we talked about, a basketball game, you know. Oh, Lord, give me grace that I will grow in my astonishment and amazement. So, adoration. <coughs> Introduce it for 30 minutes because it's so important. So, now we come to the topic of faith faith in worship. It's interesting as Paul discusses Abraham and his offering up Isaac. He says in Romans chapter 4 no distrust made him waver concerning the promise of God. This was, he's considering the barrenness of, of Sarah and, and the birth of, uh, of Isaac, but uh, didn't know him to be Isaac, of course, at this point. But when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb, the promise was, you will bear a child. She will have a child. It says, no distrust made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. Look at the vital part of faith and worship, bringing glory to God because you're declaring something about God, declaring that God is a faithful God. His promise is sure. He is reliable. He is trustworthy. It exalts him when we put our trust in him. It is an Vital part of worship and exaltation of God. Not only that we enjoy Him and that we're amazed at Him, but hand in hand with that, we entrust ourselves to Him because we see His glory and His greatness. He is worthy to be trusted. And so in this hymn book of praise, the the Psalms themselves, here's a psalm as many places in the Psalms where it says, Trust the Lord. A part of worship, a part of giving Him praise, is that we develop our trust and faith in Him. It's interesting in Psalm 95, a psalm of worship that we read last week, it cuts in the middle as worship is being given up to God and He's being praised for His greatness. See that you not be like Israel, because Israel hardened its heart and wouldn't believe Him. It was their lack of faith that interrupts the worship of God at that point. As though as to say, this heart of adoration and love must mean that you entrust yourself to Him. So I say, right as I'm talking about the glory and honor given to God, don't let your heart be like Israel in unbelief. That cuts the nerve of worship. It is opposed to all worship. It means you're not praising Him. You're not honoring Him. You're not seeing Him as great because you will not trust Him. So it's just woven into the Psalms, woven into the thinking of the Scriptures from beginning to end. here, uh, as Paul describes it, this is the way that Abraham gave glory to God. He honored Him. He exalted Him. How? By trusting His promise. By believing in him. And so, we don't have time to cover every detail of this passage. I had, in fact, at one point referenced Psalm 73, by the way. It's great to 37, 73, get it? Just reverse the numbers. And the subject is very similar in Psalm 73. And he talks about envying evildoers, the, the that which is dealt with in the first two verses. And it's interesting in Psalm 73, he says, I was like that envying them until I came in the sanctuary, until I engaged in worship. And that's the Psalm where he says, I have nothing in heaven but you, and I desire nothing on earth but you. What had happened is he recalibrated his heart to see that God was his treasure. When God ceased being his treasure, then instead of thinking he had something to offer the world, he was looking at the world wanting what they had. Imagine, you have the glory of God, you have fellowship with God, and he's so hardened against that goodness and, and, the, and, the, and it's so faded from his mind that he was looking for and envying what the wicked have. But he said, I was restored. And toward the end, he says, again, you are my portion. At one point, he wanted their portion. You know, it's like two pieces of pie, you know. Now, if it's Steve and we're cutting up cake, Steve would be envious of me if I got the rose because Steve loves icing. He just craves icing more than normal human beings do. So he, he gets a little bag of icing if a cake is made. That's what it's like. But... So it would be hard for Steve to look at a piece of cake that had more icing than his piece. And that's basically what the psalmist is saying in Psalm 73. And and the address right here, not to be envious of wrongdoers, because suddenly we look and we like, gosh, I like your piece of this world. I like what you have, your riches or your ease of life, all of these things. That looks way better than the portion I have, which is just Jesus. In New Testament terms. But he says, I went in the sanctuary and I saw that their end is destruction. Their end is destruction, and I have God. (laughs) That's what he came to see. Their end is misery and destruction, and I have the Lord. And I'd lost it. He says, I was like an animal, I was like a beast, that I lost track, I lost perspective, I lost my affections. I was worshiping an idol at that point. So that's just a short version, but uh, if you want to read more on those first two verses, Psalm 73 is a great passage to deal with that envy of evildoers and shows that we lose track. It's really a problem of adoration. It's a problem that we no longer taste the goodness and we're no longer amazed at our God. We're more amazed at what the world has than God Himself. But then the command... Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and befriend faithfulness. Delight yourself in the Lord and He will give you the desires of your heart. Notice, uh, first of all, we're going to discuss this passage and then we're going to trace a little bit God's covenant to do us good as it runs through Scripture, uh, which is basically what we're doing here is trusting in His goodness toward us, trusting in His faithfulness. But just to explore this a little bit as it's found here in Psalm 37... Notice the connection between trust and delight. Delight I would put in the category of adoration from last week. Okay? So that adoration is hand in hand with trust. We'll look at that a a bit more. So he says, trust in the Lord and then do good. Do good basically is to walk in love, walk in kindness. Love your neighbor as you love yourself. That's the Old Testament form and one of the two great commandments that Christ pointed out in the Old Testament. So, trust and love. And, of course, you can't do good when you're fretting and envious You're not acting out of your reservoir of gratitude and happiness than to pour yourself out for the benefit of others. If you're envying evildoers instead of trusting in the Lord and being satisfied in Him as your portion, how can you do good to them? How can you pour yourself out for them? If you're not a mountain that's replenished with the rains of God's grace so that your streams then flow out to the world, you will be envious. You will be dissatisfied. You will be hardened. And so he says, Trust in the Lord. See yourself as a desert that only God can fill. Otherwise, you will feel like you're just a desert and you won't hear his rain or see his rain or feel his rain. Uh, that's what happens. That's what's going on in verses 1 and 2 if there is a fretting and a of uh, being envious of wrongdoers. You're standing in the downpour of God's grace, but you're looking at the dirty glass of water that the world is holding. So trust and do good. It's the same order of Paul in the New Testament. In Galatians chapter 5, he says, faith working itself out in love, Galatians 5, 6. Or the way the NIV has it, faith expressing itself through love. And so you see the same order here, the same connection. Trust in Him and then pour yourself out for others. Then notice, dwell in the land and befriend faithfulness. This is, this is similar to dwell in the land. The land is the great symbol of God's blessing on His people. And it's the great symbol of God's fellowship with His people. It's really the symbol of restored paradise in a way. And that's why he says so often in the Old Testament, if you obey and submit, then he will will make the earth bring forth riches. And so it was a little picture of paradise, even as the uh, tabernacle and temple, because they were adorned with paradise uh, images, was like a restoration to paradise and fellowship with God. And so the land had that feel about it. And that's why in verse 11 here, as you look, the meek shall inherit the land. Jesus quotes that pointing to the future, that the meek shall inherit the earth. So that the land was like a little patch of promise of the new heavens and the new earth. Okay? A little patch of promise of that new, final, restored creation that God will bring. So it's really a token of His fellowship. So dwelling in the land is a way of saying, enjoy Him in the land He has given you. Certainly the heart of the land is Yahweh Himself. So rest in His goodness, have confidence in His care, have hope in what He will do for you. That's what it means to dwell in the land. And then this interesting phrase, He says, befriend faithfulness. Now, the word befriend is literally the word to shepherd, okay? To shepherd. Um, In fact, in Psalm 23, the noun form is, The Lord is my shepherd. I I shall lack nothing. But this is the verb form, and it's an imperative. And so, literally it's saying, shepherd faithfulness. Now, the Jewish Publication Society's translation says, Cherish faithfulness. Or NIV is good because it says cultivate faithfulness. It's kind of like shepherd faithfulness in your heart, you see. Cultivate faithfulness. As you trust in Him, cultivate then a faithfulness toward Him. A faithfulness toward others. As you enjoy and rest in Him, Faithfulness should pour forth from your life. Now, that includes ob- obedience, but the heart of faithfulness really is an attachment to God. It's faithful in a personal way. That I am—he's supreme in my affections. I have no idols beside Him. I'm faithful to His word and faithful to His authority because I adore Him. I love Him. I trust Him. So, uh, this. If you're dwelling in the land and trusting in his goodness, then you want to give yourself to him. You want to give yourself to him. So you see how a vital part of worship is in our trust, our trust issuing in love and our trust issuing in a faithful giving of ourselves to him. So there's a response to his glory that makes us want to give ourselves to Him and makes us want to give ourselves to others. So, this, and then in the very next phrase, delight yourself in the Lord. So, see how trust in His goodness, delight and adoration issue in my life is spent. My life goes out from me. I become this mountain that the grace of God is raining into my life. I trust in Him and adore Him and I do good, and I commit my life. I shepherd faithfulness in my heart for God. So there there seems to be in Scripture this uh, interplay constantly of adoration and faith, adoration and faith. Those who adore Him and recognize Him and see His glory, they want to put their life in His hands. They know He's trustworthy. They want to trust His Word. They want to know His will because they believe He is good. They trust in His goodness. Now, I want to trace through a little bit of this how, how central this is to God's covenant. He, in the covenant, He promises us Himself and He marries Himself to us. He binds Himself. He doesn't, he doesn't just say, I will do you good. He seals it in the very blood of His Son as we're going to see that. But I want us to look at several passages and try to piece them together in our remaining time. And it'll help if you have that blue book in front of you. um, And I'll help you find the pages. Um, um, in first of all, porky pig, Jeremiah chapter 32, page 661. You remember the, uh, be patient with me, you remember uh, in the Looney Tunes where the big bulldog Butch meets Porky Pig? <laughs> and he says, uh, well, what, 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 what's your name? Butch. 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 Not Butch, butch, just plain Butch. Okay, just while you're turning the pages, right. Sorry. <laughs> All right, at the bottom of page 60, 661, notice the promise beginning in verse 40. And there are three things I want you to notice that, that describe how he will do good. I will make with him an everlasting covenant that I will not turn away from doing good to them. Now, in chapter 31, he's talked about the new covenant, and we read of that in Hebrews 8, a specific reference to uh, Jeremiah 31. So this is the same context. I will make with them an everlasting covenant. I will not turn away from doing good to them. And I will put the fear of me in their hearts. That means I will bring about all. And adoration and trust in their hearts, okay? The very things we're talking about. I will make them worshipers that they may not turn from me. I will rejoice in doing them good. And I will plant them in this land in faithfulness with all my heart and all my soul. So he says, I will not turn away. And you can address this to yourself, okay? Make it personal. God in his covenant in Jesus Christ saying... I will not turn away from doing you good. I will rejoice over you to do you good. And I will do you good with all of my heart and all of my soul. he's He's not satisfied with just telling us that he will do us good. He tells us that it will give him unlimited happiness. He's not doing it begrudgingly. He's not doing it haltingly. He's not doing it half-heartedly in any sense, he will be exuberant as he does you good. He will look for every way and will accomplish it because he's God in doing you good. And he will do it with all of his being. What in the world does that mean that God would employ all that he is to do you good? Now, let's couple that If you'll back up to Isaiah chapter 9. This zeal to do us good centers on the gift of a son in Isaiah 9. The covenant is to do us good. He won't turn away. He rejoices over us to do us good. He will do it with all his heart and all his soul. And then this very well-known passage Page 573, if you don't know where Isaiah is, right before Jeremiah, page 573, the bottom of page 9, verse 6, 4, to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government should be upon his shoulder, and his name should be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. And one of my favorite phrases in the Bible, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. The zeal, the burning desire that he has To do us good. The burning zeal to come to us in the person of Christ. And of course, with the full revelation of the New Testament, you know what this means. That He will give of His Son to sacrifice for us. He will raise Him from the dead and seat Him at the right hand of God. His zeal will accomplish this. So you get the the flavor of Jeremiah, but specifically pointed to the gift of the Son. And against this backdrop, you see, consider John 3.16. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. See, His zeal to do us good, His energy to accomplish good for us, Meant even that he would give his son, and there then it 's very specific, so that he would suffer for us, so that he would bear our punishment, so that he would bear our condemnation, so that he would take that punishment away, so that we would not know that condemnation, and he says He gave His only Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. And later in His high priestly prayer, Jesus says, This is eternal life that they know You, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom You have sent. And so it means that He gave His only Son because He so loved us that He wanted to restore us and know Him and enjoy Him and adore Him and be like Him, to be in fellowship with Him, to know Him. That just amazes me. he so loved the world so that he gave his son so that whoever believed in him could enter into everlasting fellowship with him, and It would mean, of course, to know him to be in that intimacy would mean that now he is, he will accomplish all of the good that he has promised in us, such a zeal that he let all the stops up he out he held nothing back, he spent everything he had. He gave His only Son. His zeal for our good meant that He even gave His only Son for our happiness and benefit. That is how committed He is to do you good. He will not turn away from it. He rejoices to do it. He does it with all His heart and soul. How do you know it? He gave His Son for it. He gave His Son to accomplish good in your life. Isaiah 9, talking about His zeal in regard to the Son. And John 3.16, talking about the love that He had to give His Son. This is proof of the promise of Jeremiah 32, that He will do us good. And you see, that's the backdrop for those popular verses like Romans 8.28. All things work together for good for those that love Him. Well, the backdrop is the covenant of Jeremiah. Yeah, I guess they do work for good because he's not going to turn away from good. He rejoices to do good. He does it with all of his heart. I guess everything will work together for good. Because that's what he's promised to do in the covenant. His zeal to accomplish this for us. And that's how we read Romans 8.32. He didn't spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. And how will He not also with Him graciously give us all things? It's the proof of His desire to do us good. He's already given us His Son. I love, as you know, I've quoted a lot, but the Psalm 23, goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And one guy put it this way. He said, "It's He's not just waiting to do you good, He's running after you to do you good. Like, I'm walking down the street and my wife is running after me and says, Darwin, Darwin. And I think, oh, no, what's happened? What's gone on now? We just won the sweepstakes. (laughs) So she's running after me to tell me good news. God comes after you, it says, to do you good. uh, John Piper gives the example of George Mueller, who was married to his wife for 39 years. And she finally, she died when he was 64. Uh, <clears throat> and a while after the funeral, he preached what he called a funeral sermon. It was based on Psalm 119 uh, and verse 68. The, the, the verse is, you are good and you do good. And his three points were, the Lord did good and was good in giving her to me <clears throat> The Lord was good and did good in so long leaving her to me. The Lord was good and did good in taking her from me. See how he read everything in the light of a Jeremiah passage, in the light of Romans 8.28 or Romans 8.32. It's the goodness of God surrounds us, invades us, controls us, pursues us. It will not be stopped. Who's going to stop it? It's going to stop the goodness of God? And you think because some tragedy, some difficulty, some thing that happens in your life is going to up. God's sitting there. He's just frustrated. Oh, I meant to do something for you, but I can't now. I'm sorry. Gosh, you know, no, nothing can thwart him. Nothing, Paul says, separates us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. That's not just the love that's sitting somewhere minding its own business, a love that's just contemplating love. It's a love that actively benefits us, and nothing can separate us from that love to actively benefit us, to conform us to Christ, to make us into His image. And so Psalm 35, 27 says, Great is the Lord who delights in the welfare of His servants. His greatness is in that He delights in your welfare. Great is the Lord who delights in the welfare of His servants. And so, this is why in Hebrews 11, that familiar verse, Without faith... It is impossible to please Him. If you want to worship Him, trust Him. Without faith, it's impossible to please Him. Whoever would draw near to God must believe that He exists, okay, and that He rewards those who seek Him. It's to believe that in seeking Him and having Him, I will have all the treasures of life in Him. It's to believe that promise. That in Him, I have one who is committed to my goodness forever. And I can always give myself to His will. I can always follow Him. I can always count on Him in the midst of every circumstance. He will do me good always. And I just want to close with a couple of these passages. The first one, by Flannery O'Connor who talks about giving yourself to the things of God and seeking joy in Him. She says, always you renounce a lesser good for a greater. God never asks you to give up life. There is death to self. There is death to sin. But He always promises life. She always says, turn away from that which is lesser to have that which is greater. Never lose. You lose things you need to lose, but you never lose. She says, the opposite is what sin is, that you reject the greater for the lesser. Like Romans 1, when we won't exalt and love him and we turn to the creature Or the way Jeremiah puts it in Jeremiah 2, you turned from me the fountain of living waters and you went and built a a well that couldn't even hold water. That's the picture of sin. So the greater thing, the, the thing to give yourself to is to plant yourself by the oasis, by the fountain. Don't go build yourself this well that can't hold water. And notice how she puts it. The struggle to submit to him is not a struggle to submit, but a struggle to accept. To accept the life and the promise that he has. It is a submission, but it's really an acceptance of what he offers you in himself. And she says to accept it with passion. I mean, possibly with joy. Picture me with my ground teeth stalking joy. (laughs) Like a tiger with no teeth, she's saying. Fully armed because it's a highly dangerous quest. seek for this joy. And that's why Isaiah 55, 2 says, Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me. Eat what is good. Delight yourselves in rich food. And Job says, If you return to the Almighty, you will be built up. If you remove injustice far from your tents, if you lay gold in the dust and gold of Ophir among the stones of the torrent bed, then the Almighty will be your gold and your precious silver. Then you will delight yourself in the Almighty and lift up your face to God. Let us pray. Lord, we pray that you will be our treasure, you will be our gold. We pray that we will believe Your covenant promise to do us good, proven in how You've given Your Son. Your zeal, Your passion to do us good has no boundary. You lavished upon us even Your own Son. And that for sinners to suffer for us, to stand and bear punishment for us. Lord. You went to every imaginable and even unimaginable extremes in order to purchase your people to own us and have us so that, as Paul says in Ephesians, you could unveil the riches of your grace by being kind to us forever. Oh, Lord, work in our hearts. Turn people here that have never put their lives in your hands because they haven't believed that you are good. They just haven't. They've held back. They they don't want to give themselves to your word. They don't want to give themselves to your people. They don't want to trust you with all that they are because of unbelief. We pray, Lord, even now, work in their hearts so that they will say, Oh, Lord Jesus, forgive me. Take my sin away. Lord Jesus, restore me, renew me, transform me. Lord, take hold of me. Would put myself completely in your hands for forgiveness and transformation. And Lord, we believers have to confess to you, as we've already done this morning, but how often, how often in sometimes little, sometimes big things, we show the skirts of our unbelief that we don't believe in your goodness. Oh Lord, root us in that goodness. Make it the foundation and atmosphere of our whole lives. Strengthen us, Lord, through your word to believe in your grace. For Jesus' sake, we pray. Amen. The scene is clouded over